Previously on Enneagram Journey. And let me tell you, kids, envy has hatred in it. Because envy has like this weird boomerang, figure eight, eternal symbol kind of quality to it. It swings from one extreme to the other. I'm sitting here in my cruddy apartment, listening to my Joni Mitchell record. <laughs> Maybe put on a little Leonard Cohen afterwards. Put myself in a mood. You know, I'm thinking about my sister and she's having a barbecue this weekend and her kids are playing in their little pool and her husband, Fred, is probably flipping burgers and they're all talking about the game, the football game, and they're all so happy and simple. I wish I could be like that. I wish I could. I'd just be satisfied with regular stuff like my sister and her family. I mean, there they are. They're just having a nice little summer day. You know, I, if I could only be like that. But you know, if I ever am like that, please shoot me right here. <laughs> shoot me right here because I would rather die than be like those cows. Those cows. Never, never. He was very proud of you, you know. I wonder what he'd think now. What do you mean? Come on. My marriage is over, I don't have a job. That's why you didn't come see him these last few weeks. You thought he'd think less of you. I think less of me, I've got nothing, look at me. Way too old to have this much nothing. Sit down, baby. It's, it's fine, seriously. No, let me tell you about your dad. You could have talked to him. He'd have understood. How? He never failed at anything. That was kind of dad's thing, oh, wasn't God, it? Oh, God, Judd. Mark would have lost his business years ago if it hadn't been for my royalties and, and, and Paul coming in when he did. Hmm. Your father was a terrible businessman. He just figured if he had the store, you, you'd all come work there. You know, he just wanted to be around you. Your father loved you, not what you did. I mean, the Man Up show, are you kidding? I mean, you've listened to it, right? It's asinine. <laughs> no. Welcome to an all-new episode of the Enneagram Journey podcast with Suzanne Stabile. My name is Joel, and today's episode was recorded in front of a live audience at one of our favorite coffee shops here in Dallas, Union Coffee. You can find out more about Union Coffee and the great things that they're doing in the community at uniondallas.org. Our guests for this live recording are friends and therapists Katie Alanis, Enneagram 4, and Justine Guzman, Enneagram 1. Learn about impression management and therapy and the Enneagram. Let's talk about social media, agreements, rules, and boundaries. Also, let's learn about everyone at the table. Suzanne asked Katie and Justine to help with some important terminology and identifiers in today's world. Before we get to it, though, it's plug time. Have you applied yet for the 2023 LTM cohort? We've got the Enneagram cohort, the Contemplative cohort, the Family Systems Experience cohort. All three will be incredible opportunities for growth and community. You can apply for one, you can apply for two of them, or apply for all three. The Family Systems one is brand new, and I've had the, the gift of sitting in for the Anagram cohort and the Contemplative cohort over the past several years. Suzanne will be leading the Anagram cohort, the Reverend and Hunter Mobley leading the Contemplative cohort, and the very good Reverend Dr. Andy Stoker and the Anagram Godmother will be facilitating the Family Systems Experience Cohort. Learn more, 
Get the important dates and info and apply today at lifeinthetrinityministry.com slash 2023 cohorts. August 4th through 6th, from intentional to intuitive, the Anagram event of the year, it is almost here. Did you know that your registration, whether you're coming in person or joining virtually, your registration includes access to the replay through the end of September? Yeah, you're going to want that because it's going to be over 10 hours of phenomenal teaching from Suzanne. From intentional to intuitive, Thursday, August 4th through Saturday, August 6th. You can get the deets and register at SuzanneStabile.com or LifeInTheTrinityMinistry.com. I could plug the table next. I could plug our upcoming podcast and teaching trips to Birmingham, Alabama, Charlotte, North Carolina, Kansas City, Missouri, San Francisco, California, or a bunch of other stuff. But for now, let's go ahead and get to today's podcast. And you can visit LifeInTheTrinityMinistry.com on your own time and catch up on what's going on at LTM. Thank you all for cramming in. We were, it always goes this way. We were set outside. The audio, everything worked. It recorded. The speakers worked. I was like, this is it, the first time. And then it started raining. You know, whatever the lesson is there. Uh, <laughs> thank you all so much for coming. I think we'll have a few more people trickle in. If anyone else wants an Anagram 7 jersey, there's one more that exists, and he doesn't like to wear it. Find, find Andy Stoker later, and uh, he'll, get it, he'll get your information. First of all, we got Michael, Kaylee, and Katie back there. Buy stuff from them. Give them money. Okay? Thank you all for having us. Union Coffee. Uh, if you have a phone, and if you don't, you're a liar, then take a picture. Post that you're here, and so on. That's the only way for LTM to reach new people is for people like y'all to tell people that we're doing stuff. And then this is the Anagram Journey Podcast. Has anyone not heard the Anagram Journey Podcast? Excellent. Who all has left a review or a rating for the Anagram Journey Podcast? Unacceptable. (laughs) All right, so do that. It takes 30 seconds. It's really helpful. Thank you for being here. And uh, now I'll send it to the Anagram Godmother. You got to clap. Give it up for Suzanne Stabile. Joe Stabile, when we get home tonight, if you don't know who's, like, important, it's... Oh, okay. Uh, the first thing I want to say is... Uh, Happy and sad and unexpected and important. Uh, Joe and I lost a really, really dear friend a couple of weeks ago, and his memorial service was yesterday. And his name is Steve Kelly. And um, Steve would be so glad that we're here. And he would be so glad that I'm here with two Therapists who are committed to non-traditional counseling for non-traditional relationships along with traditional relationships. Like y'all cover the whole gamut, like the the traditional and the non-traditional, which is kind of how I feel about church. So, um, and Steve spent uh, the last years of his life 
trying to teach and speak into the culture and to speak into the church about the dignity and humanity and goodness of every single human. And I'm so sad that he's not here and so glad for all that he taught me and other people. So tonight, in whatever way that makes any sense to you, uh, this is partly for him and a result of all that he taught us. And my granddaughter just got here. (laughs) And my other granddaughter just got here. And my daughter-in-law just got here. I got my hair cut because she had short hair and I thought I'd look really cute. And then now she's pink. (laughs) I don't know, Giuseppe, what do you think? Me in pink? Okay. I'm going to make my decision after we find out what the United Methodist Church does about stuff. Let's meet today's guests. I'm going to start with Katie. I told them when we were sitting outside, as the rain started to come down, the eternal optimist that I am, Justine was like, oh, I just felt one. I was like, it's probably just sat from the trees. Don't worry about all that. (laughs) And uh, sure enough, we send everyone this short thing. It's like, how'd you figure out your Enneagram number? Kind of, what are you doing? Anything you don't want to talk about, anything you really do want to talk about, it is really efficient. And under things about Katie, four things make me, like, super happy. I don't even remember the two of them. But one was good coffee, and we were like, check. And then the other one was the office. And I was like, all right, this is going to work out really well. <laughs> so we please tell everyone a little bit about yourself? And then we're going to go to Justine, and then we're going to get into some Enneagram conversation. There's going to be a lot of good time for Q&A about midway through and at the end. So if you got a question... Just be prepared to, to ask it, okay? All right. Everyone give it up for Katie. There we go. I am Katie Alanese. Um, I'm a therapist. I own my own private practice um, that we are completely telehealth and serve all of Texas. It's called The Wakeful State. Um, got my start in counseling through eating disorders, actually, um, but now I work with like Suzanne said, I do a lot of couples therapy um, and serving, I guess, more the alternative, non-traditional people, especially in Dallas. So I'm part of the queer community um, and the polyamorous community in Dallas. So that is a lot of my clientele that end up finding me. Um, Yeah, I'm a mom to an 11-year-old who thinks she's 23, I think. That's a fair (laughs) assumption. Yeah, I think that's most of the important stuff. The other two things, by the way, were fresh hydrangeas and a good makeup palette. <laughs> hey, now, I, now I understand why I forgot them. So, <laughs> You're like, that doesn't matter. <laughs> All right. And, and Enneagram 4. There we go. Yeah. All right. Part of your introduction needs to be how you discovered that. You, your words, I'm a true one. Oh, oh, oh. oh man. Okay. I'm Justine. I'm Justine Guzman. Um, the way I figured out I'm a true one. Um, can't hear me over there. I'm sorry. You have to talk loud. I'll be so much louder. Is that better? That's good. Okay. The, the way I kind of figured out that I was a true one is actually an example that was in your book. 
which is I reorder dishes in a dishwasher if they're not put in very efficiently because there's a right way to do that and like a lot of wrong ways to do that. So that's a little bit how I figured it out. And also with the help of my supervisor that made me figure out what number I was. I um, am also a therapist. I operate out of a practice by Walnut Hill and 75 called Nawaju Wellness Center. Um, there I do a lot of individual work, a lot of relationship work. If you are non-traditional in any sense of the word, sexual orientation, relationship orientation, um, I'm your gal there. Got started also in eating disorder work with Katie. We were working at the same place. Um, I guess also because it's Pride Month, I'm also a part of the queer community, um, as well as polyamorous. We're like a lot alike. All right. Um, so yeah, that's, that's me. We're not a lot alike in some ways, and we're a lot alike in other ways. And one of the things that I think is maybe the most important thing, and one of the reasons I'm so excited about us getting to have this conversation is because I have been saying from the jump 30 years ago that um, I was sure that the Enneagram is common language everywhere that it is a language that everybody can speak. And I would brag and say it's in every faith belief, and everybody around the world knows the Enneagram. Like when things got really slow during COVID and I was getting a little depressed, Joel said, Mom, don't be so down. You are really hot in Singapore right now. <laughs> and I was. We did a big-time Q&A with them late one night, and... Man, I felt like a rock star. <laughs> and before that, they had always said, I don't know who said it first or why, but they said internationally known, I think because my books are published in a lot of languages. And I would always say, what does that mean? Well, now it means that I'm internationally known. <laughs> I think in our conversation and in my uh, way that I'm the same, uh, is that we know that the universal language of the Enneagram is good for all relationships. And it universally works regardless of the context, relationship context or otherwise. And I think that's um, a more and more and more important reality because, we talked about this a little bit outside, because you can say something in a relationship and it can be emotionally charged and very hurtful. But if you say the same thing and you're using Enneagram numbers, then it's like it's over there. It's like you're talking about it over there instead of between us. And so you can hear it somehow and not feel like it was uh, put down or an attack or uh, all the stuff. Uh, we were talking about this also, about the dynamics of, all right, I'm the therapist, I know the Enneagram, but they don't. Uh, they know the Enneagram numbers, but but I don't um, like all the all, there's several different and then the the fourth one that we came up with was the enneagram is the devil and it's like okay well we're not gonna deal with that type of couple here <laughs> but uh, the idea we talk about how the name of the podcast you and I love so much is the enneagram journey and the big reason of that if anybody doesn't know it was she did the road back to you podcast for the first book. And then the publisher wanted her to have a podcast to support the second book. But we were going to do it. 
And I was like, we don't want to do a one-off to support a book. Let's do a podcast that's just going to continue. And we need a name for that. We're not going to name it The Path Between Us Podcast. And we stuck with the Antium Journey. And for a million reasons, that was a great call. And we like to say that some episodes are a little bit more Enneagram. And some are a little bit more Journey. And we don't know what tonight's going to be. But both are about discovering yourself and who you are and where you fit in the world. And what are the, will you, you say it better than I ever could, the two things that everybody you've ever come in contact with wants. Yeah. I've never met anybody who doesn't want these two things. Belonging, and they want their life to have meaning. Everybody wants that. Every single person. And belonging uh, has fallen on hard times for a long time. And one of the reasons I'm so excited about uh, wise folks who are working with adolescents is because I think adolescents start out, for the most part, very brave about who they are until they get the message that they shouldn't be brave about that and that who they are is not okay. And then, along with the bravery goes their sense of themselves. And I think everybody needs a cheerleader to help them be brave. Like, I, I have to have Joe to help me be brave. And he's not reachable all the time. So I now have Andy Stoker as my concierge pastor. <laughs> because he helps me be brave. And I was given a lot of room to be myself as an adolescent, but not a lot of instruction about being brave. That was all really wonderful. I was going a different angle, so I, I, I love that. <laughs> you have both found belonging and found meaning in what you do. We, uh, I listened to, I don't know if, has anyone listened to the podcast that was released today by any chance while we're pulling people? A few people. All right. We're Oh, my gosh. Don't miss it. So, I've really struggled to come up with the word privilege. And, yeah, it was embarrassing. Someone, uh, yeah. I was like, what is it? What is it? And, then, and then the most embarrassing part was I started listing off my privilege. I was like, well, I'll get to it eventually if I just start naming them. <laughs> I taught you that. So, we are, for people that aren't here, we're in a part of Dallas. Why did you ask us to be on the podcast? And part of it is the demographic of where we are. That's important. So you have both found place in the world and found purpose. Can you talk about how you got to this place? I mean, I, I guess when, when you say, like, how did I find meaning, the first thing that comes to mind is what I choose to do for a living. That mo that's a lot of where I get purpose or meaning. Um, and I guess that actually does kind of come from how I was treated as a teenager because I was in therapy as a teenager and that gave me an opportunity to really not be afraid and find my voice and figure things out when a lot of adults around me were not letting me do that. So that kind of helped me to figure out like, oh, okay, I want to be a therapist. I want to help other people do that as well. Um, when it comes to finding community, um, I actually kind of think that the Enneagram is a good kind of shorthand for that too because with a lot of personality assessments I kind of don't put a lot of stock in them I don't love Myers-Briggs like a lot of them I just don't enjoy keep um, talking keep talking 
They're just not for me. They're just not my cup of tea. Um, and then when my supervisor kind of tasked me with figuring out my number, I was like, ah, oh, whatever. It's just going to be like Myers-Briggs. Oh. Um, and I figured it out, and I was reading through that chapter. It was felt very much like being seen um, and understood in a way that Myers-Briggs just didn't do for me. Um, so that felt that felt good to be understood in that way. So, and I think a lot of people feel that way. Like whenever I turn someone onto the Enneagram, they all, they react the same way that I did. Oh, well, it's just another, this is the one with the numbers, like, uh, and then they start reading about themselves in the chapter and they're like, oh, this is very universal. This is my experience. This is impactful. So here's the thing that I'll bring you from Steve Kelly, because they told the story yesterday at the memorial service. He had three binders at his house when his daughter went through all of his things in the last couple of weeks. And they have those uh, sheets, you know, protector sheets that you can slip things into. They have for every appliance and everything that works in the house, it's the warranty and the book that tells you how to load the dishwasher or all the stuff, all the stuff. Primo. That's awesome. I'm, I'm telling you, and I Love was that. just in a position where I could see everybody in the church, and I looked around, and I thought, okay, I know your number, your number, your number, your number, because they were all going, oh, that's awesome. <laughs> Steve was a seven, but he, you know, went to one in stress and got stuff done. Uh, gotcha. All right, Katie, what about you? On that topic real quick, I wonder if, like, some of them were fours, but in a healthy one space, like going to one would hope <laughs> security. Because I was like, I scan my manuals into my Google Drive so I don't lose it. So, <laughs> That's another level. <laughs> <laughs> Just to be on my guess is that you've never felt the kind of shame for your one wing that you're feeling right now. <laughs> Scanned in, got it all going on. Joel even has them in a drawer. <laughs> um so is anyone else in here a four like that would okay yep like two um that's the right ratio it's the rare it's the rare number it's interesting when you talk about belonging because that's one of the hallmarks of being a four is like i never belonged like i don't (laughs) i don't belong anywhere i used to describe it to my therapist um when i was not as healthy as I am today. Um, I was like, it's like I can see everyone in my life walking around and doing stuff, but I'm in like this bubble so I can touch them still and like feel what's going on and still participate. But like, I'm not in their world. Like I'm very separated. Um, But I think working together um, with, we had the same supervisor, and when she made me figure out my number as well, because we were all part of the same treatment team for clients, I was like, Justine, I was like, great, another personality test. Like, I haven't done a million of those. And yeah, reading about fours, I didn't want to be a four, I will say, when Whitney told me I was one. Um, so Typical. I went online. I know, right? I was like, I don't want to be complicated. That's, that's icky. Um, that's gross. So I went online and took a test, and it was like, you are a four. And I was like, Okay, fine. Um, I'll accept it. But yeah, reading through the chapters, I was like, oh my God, like I am not alone. Maybe there's not something wrong with me. That's odd. Because <laughs> um, I'm sure like everybody else, me growing up, it was very similar to what Suzanne was saying, where 
it was all very like, just make things look good. <laughs> like, and if you don't fit into a certain mold or a certain box, there's probably something wrong with you and, or you just make everyone uncomfortable. So you're too much. Um, so figuring that out and working with a group of people that had the Enneagram language was huge. Cause I could, and now me and my two best friends, which Justine is one. Um, we just have that language now. Like I could just walk in the room and be like, I'm having a real four day. So not feeling it. And they'd be like, do you want a cup of coffee? Do you want us to, we won't talk to you. I'll leave you alone. Like you can just be miserable and I'll let you do that. And I was like, perfect. Um, so yeah, the Enneagram definitely helps with belonging. And then also just, I think finding your tribe is a huge thing that I know people talk about all the time. Um, I just remember being in our old office like six, seven years ago and I still didn't know who I was. And I said something about my life and Justine went up top, me too. And I was like, Hey, I can talk to you. (laughs) So yeah, I think feeling a sense of true belonging has been probably just in the past, like seven, eight years of life. So Got late to it, but it's okay. Yeah, I, uh, I thought of several things I wanted to say, and one of my favorite lines came from one of my apprentices a number of years ago, at, who's a four, and she said, I'm always either too much or not enough. And she said, I don't, I don't know how to find that middle space and stay there. And then she came back a couple, you know, that's a three-year program. She came back there the next year and said, well, I know how to find it, and I know how to stay there, but I'm getting well, so I don't want to. Yikes. Yeah, that's fine, right? And the other thing, some of these folks are coming tomorrow, and I'm going to talk about bubbles tomorrow. And one of the things I've been trying to talk about in terms of growing up is that the bubble we grow up in determines a lot of the opportunity that life gives to us. I was adopted. So the bubble I grew up in, I didn't really fit either because I knew one other adopted person. And so one of the things I'd like for y'all to speak to, this is just, this will be my session. I'll pay you later. (laughs) But one of the things I'd like for both of you to speak to is the whole idea of the things that we do to ourselves all of life, unless we get healthier than I am, and I've been at it a while, to belong, knowing the whole, whole time that it's not going to hold till next Tuesday. You know, if you can fit in for a few minutes somewhere and you feel fine about it, then go for it. Is that inauthenticity to a four or disingenuous to a one? Or is it okay? Because I'm going to tell you as a pastor's wife, like, did you meet me and think, I bet she's a great pastor's wife? <laughs> I am, actually, but I'm not like lots of them my age. It's all I'm about not. context. <laughs> I was about to say, that's why we like you so much. <laughs> there you go. And, and so, I, I haven't found people who say to me, fitting in for a few minutes is good enough. I think it depends. I think it depends on intentionality. Because the first thing that comes to mind is, maybe it's just given kind of the month that we're in and just what just seems to be happening all the time. Um, is it safe for me to be genuine right now? Like, am I going to be harmed? Am I going to be in trouble if I'm my authentic self? Maybe, okay, well, if I need to fit in right now, then I need to fit in, and maybe I can, and I can choose that. I'm intentionally choosing that. 
And then maybe at another time, I can be more my authentic self and I'm, I'm choosing that because it feels safe. Like that's the first thing that comes to my mind when it comes to that. So my dad's way of saying that was it's okay to play the game as long as you know you're playing. Does that work? Good. Because I do that a good bit. <laughs> yeah, I think because as a four wing three, my three space is like become who you need to be for that situation. Yeah. Um, and I think some of that can be healthy. It's why I love networking events when a lot of other therapists are just kind of like, I can't. <laughs> like, I don't want to go talk about myself. Um, I can just be in that space for about 20, 30 minutes. Yeah. And be like, hey, I do this, I do that, here's so-and-so, let me introduce y'all, very charismatic, and then eventually I'm going to be too drained to keep going with that group, but I think it's okay, just... Just for a bit. So, I think we have to be taught how to love one another, and I think uh, parents have to be taught how to love their children in ways that maybe weren't part of our history, Or don't fit with our Enneagram number. So here's one of my worst parenting moments. Not the worst, because I have lots of worst parenting moments. And if you don't have adult children yet, let me just tell you to get ready. Because. Pay attention to what she's about to say. (laughs) Holidays at our table, one of our children will get started on one thing that we didn't do to their satisfaction. And then it's a litany. We hear about the wrong haircut, the perm. She got her ears pierced and I didn't get to. Like the whole, the whole thing. But as a kind, loving, good woman, parenting a four child, who was, who, who, at that age, we did not know that he was gay, nor did he, I think. But he didn't fit in where he wanted to. And I sure did say to him these words. Do you think if you could act just a little bit more like the other kids, you would be in less pain? And that seemed like such a loving thing to say. Turns out, not so much. (laughs) We make all kinds of choices that we thought through and we think are good choices. But we need lots of education, lots and lots of education. Let me first give a comment that I've been just sitting on for a little bit that I love. You said earlier that when you were reading about fours and learning about fours, you're like, oh, my gosh, there's, there's not something wrong with me. There are other people that are like this. And we heard Mike Alex Again, this is fresh on my mind, so a lot of reference to the most recent podcast. When you have to listen to it five times, you, you kind of get that buried in. <laughs> Uh, Do you know why he has to listen five times? Because I require that much editing. Uh, <laughs> um. And he, he said the same thing. Like when he learned about, when he read about sixes and heard, his was, he heard another six talking. And he was like, oh my gosh, you're talking about me. And a lot of other numbers do that. And I think there are six numbers that say, oh my gosh, there's nothing wrong with me. It's just this. And I think three sevens and eights say, oh my gosh, there's nothing wrong with them. It's just that <laughs> they're that angry. When I heard my Enneagram number, it wasn't like, I was like, yeah, that's right. There, I already knew there was nothing wrong with me. And it turns out there are other people like me. So the follow-up to what you were talking about, you're talking about BJ being a four and parenting him. The journey, his Enneagram journey has been more difficult 
as a non-heterosexual male. And so now he's actually, he actually thinks he might be a six. And he thinks he is a six. Yeah. It's just and, new information. And he's talking with someone, and week. he's going through that. Do y'all think that is a thing as two people that aren't heterosexual, that, that maybe it is more difficult to find your, and as therapists, is it harder for people that don't fit the norm to find their Enneagram number? Sometimes I would say yes. Um, when I'm working with people who have recently gone through a trauma or especially like adolescents still living at home, I do see that um, where they're almost okay, where they're they're almost trying to they're answering the questions as if like how they're supposed to where it's like I don't do that or oh no I I am really spontaneous and fun and that gets into um a quote actually by Justine we always have a joke about what do you say to make people cry like when they <laughs> when you can tell someone needs to cry but they're like no I'm good it's we're fine we're nice therapists. therapists we're doing that we're, no, 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 no. <laughs> no 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 giving us a bad rap we're I very nice therapists oh yeah um, we're very nice. Justine's like whammo is who did you have to be for your father? <laughs> and so sometimes when people are answering, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's the right, that's what she wants it's to hear you go. Uh, uh. Um, but that's sometimes I think a factor when people are answering questions and it's why sometimes I'll say, bring a partner in to the session, bring, you know, an adult child, bring, a best friend, because sometimes that awareness is not there, I think, to figure out your own Enneagram number. Um, and sometimes people are answering as if, like, well, that's what I'm supposed to say. So, I've been telling threes for 25 years, don't invest in therapy unless you're going to take somebody with you who knows you well, because you're going to go be whatever is required for the moment. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I think y'all should say... Uh, you're a three, and you have to bring somebody with you, but I'm only going to charge one of you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, I definitely agree. Um, I think if something has happened recently where you're... I can't hear you. I'm trying to be so loud. <laughs> something has happened recently that is big or, like, world-shifting, like a trauma, or maybe you're dealing with some unresolved mental health stuff or something where your identity is just not sitting stable. It's really hard to answer the questions to determine your number. And I think too, another reason why I don't like online tests is because impression management and people are going to answer the way they think they should or whatever, which is why I think you should be talking to someone that knows you a little well to determine your number so they can kind of sort through the like, Mm, but maybe not, or uh, is that how you think you should be answering, and, you know, things like that. So I'm going to sound so smart the next time I say, don't take a test, because I'm going to throw in impression management. <laughs> Man, I never heard that line before. I, I just took it up a notch. People are going to be writing down impression management. You were talking about being a four with a three wing. Suzanne, can you talk to the diff, uh, some of the big differences of a four with a three wing and a four with a two wing? Sure. Four with a five wing. And a four with a... Edit. <laughs> Suzanne. That's not a thing. Yeah, Suzanne. Yeah, I know. Isn't it awesome? 
Can you please talk to the big difference between the big difference is between a four with a three wing and a four with a five wing? Sure. Immature fours who are in their number, you know, like inconsolable, sad, the world isn't textured enough and all of that, with a big three wing are more inconsolable because they want to be the most inconsolable (laughs) or the saddest of all fours or the, I know it's exhausting, isn't it? Uh Uh Uh-oh, uh-oh. Yep, I mean, like, that's the thing. It's not like I'm a four. It's not, I'm a four. Because that's that three wings saying, I still want to differentiate myself and be the best at being this-ness. I think a a four with a three wing also lives into that reality of this is who I am, and so I'm going to do this thing. A four with a five wing does a lot of head stuff around how can I be other than all of this fourness? And they have a more intellectual and a little bit less emotional response to things. So there's some head involved in there somewhere instead of just feelings supported by feelings. And the reason Joel introduced Justine like he did in terms of her oneness is she doesn't have a wing. So if everybody's going to kind of fly in one circle, she can't go with us. You just have to. I don't have a wing. That's like my bragging point when it comes to the Enneagram, and that's Whitney's fault, wherever she is. Because, like, we really tried to sit down and figure out, like, what is my wing? And, like, I didn't know reading off the chapter. And she was like, I don't know either. So I was like, I don't have a wing. Yeah. That's me leaning into the unhealthy four, probably. I don't know. It just sounds like you have a greater commitment to perfection. <laughs> I don't need that right now okay <laughs> i don't need all that i was not ready for this real quick and then suzanne's gonna give her spiel who in here has a therapist all right now you say the words you say uh everybody needs a therapist everybody needs a spiritual director i don't i don't know how to do life without those two relationships and get it anywhere close to right i just don't know how to do that just to one of the Greatest things that I have heard recently, and I think it's from Barbara Brown Taylor, correct me, people that know, and I don't think these were her exact words, difference between a spiritual director and a therapist, a therapist helps you to like walk out of the dark, and a spiritual director helps you to walk into the dark, am I getting that remotely correct? The reverend's nodding his head, so <laughs> applause button for the recording. I'd like to do a study of who gets more applause, you or me. It's, the, it's you. Okay, me. just yeah, checking. No Since you have the button, I just yeah. want to make sure. Uh, so, now we're back. We're talking about therapy. We're talking about therapists. Do you both have therapists? I have three different therapists, yeah. <laughs> Here we go. I just have the one, but yeah. Oh, all right. Um, can you talk some about the role that Enneagram has played in your personal life? working with your therapist? Sure, yeah. I lucked out that one of my therapists does know about the Enneagram. And when you're talking about specific diagnoses, it's a lot easier when you're talking through it as like, okay, so as a four, my depression is going to be, like I lean into that real easy. Like 
no problem. Whereas anxiety is a little bit lower down there for me. I'm not as likely to feel super revved up heart racing as I am to be like, well, the whole world is going to hell and I'm just going to fade into the background. That's easy. But yeah, I would say that that's the biggest thing with therapy is I always tell my clients it, if you are down to learn about your Enneagram number and have that as part of our counseling, it's going to save a lot of time and a lot of your money. (laughs) Cause that was my experience too, where I was like, cool, can we just talk in this other language since you understand it? And it cut a lot of stuff out where she's like, cool. So you don't belong. You're sad. Like, or it's easy for you to be sad. And I was like, cool. So see, awesome. (laughs) This is not depression. It's melancholy. Yeah, I feel this way every day. I kind of like it, actually. Right? Love it. Love it. I don't trust anybody who's all happy all the time. No. Do I'll, you? No. I'll use an example that I know Whitney loves. We were in her office having a meeting one day, and the weather was so dreary. It was, like, kind of drizzling, but not enough. It was just so dark. Like, all the, like, all the sunlight had left. She said, I hate this weather, and I just looked out, and I was like, I think it's really romantic. I, I was like, it's so gray. It's so beautiful. And she was like, you're weird. Oh, that's so weird. Yeah. Telling a story about our, our son who may or may not be a four and may be a four. And we moved to a new home about a month ago. And when he said, hey, go walk out in the neighborhood, go you know, see the neighborhood. 20 minutes goes by. Cop car pulls up. He and Jace are there. Hey, there was a, you know, we got, what is it called when it's not like emergency, but call to the police. Uh, that there, there's a kid walking around the neighborhood and he, he looks so sad. And <laughs> we're like, no, that's just, that's how he walks in the neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, oh, okay, great. Well, then, never mind. And have a great day and enjoy your new home. <laughs> so, our oldest daughter is an eight, and uh, her husband is a nine. And um, she didn't have very much patience for fours, so God gave her one. Her firstborn is a four. And one of the things that they knew, because they'd known the Enneagram for so long, early on, was to say, we're just not going to try to make you happy. And he said, thank you so much. (laughs) And it saved so much energy and time and stuff to just let that be. Yeah. Like, you were awesome. As soon as I walked up outside, you were like, hey, I'm so glad you're here. And then as soon as you sat down, you said, I read your um, intro that you sent in. We hate a lot of the same things. And I was like, awesome. I can talk to you. Let's talk about that. Instead of someone coming at me being like, what do you love? What's like your zest? I can answer those questions too, but I I appreciated that you were like, we hate a lot of the same things. I am the Enneagram godmother, you know. Yeah, you know what you're doing. I've been at this for a while. I want to give one little twist on also what uh, you talked about Joey and Billy and not trying to make him happy. One of the things that I had to learn with Gracie is also I'm done going after you. I kept going. Gracie's the one that is not our biological kid, and we never know when we've got her, and we always love her and want her with us, all the things. And, she, you know, she might be a four, 
and she'll be at the house and just kind of withdraw. And I'm all, me seven, I'm like, yeah, what do you want to do? We will do anything that you want to do in the whole world. And, you know, she's like, well, I want to lay on my bed. The day that I stopped chasing after her just changed our relationship completely and, and the dynamics of the house, you know. So we got three other kids, and I'm chasing one. If we can speak to some oneness a little bit. Are you no. excited? Yeah. Sure. So excited. I don't yeah. I, I, So I owe you an apology. So I'm just going to do it in real time. I forgot all about your voices when I kept telling you that they can't hear you because I know then you, the voices are telling you in between times all the stuff. So don't listen to the voices. Listen to me because I want them to hear you. <laughs> See, and I know you know that, so I know when you give me feedback, it's coming from a place of care and not from a place of like, criticism. There you go. Enneagram Godmother. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> well, I wanted to point out when I asked, I was like, hey, can y'all send me some headshots? Did anyone see those headshots online when you signed it? Yeah, some people were not yes. Yeah, one looks like a one, and the other one looks like a four. Like, the four has got to, like, check out my tattoo. I don't have that face. Okay. <laughs> it's even like titled shoulder pick. <laughs> and then Justine sent me her, um, her business profile headshot. I didn't send it to you. You found it. You, <laughs> First of all. <laughs> you approved it. <laughs> so, can y'all talk, can y'all talk a little bit about sharing as both colleagues and friends that line that you share with four and one, some of the, you know, Whitney and I talk sometimes and we've heard other people who are in whatever relationship with each other uh, that share line. And there are times that one, one of us recognizes the other one in the other space. It is so unsettling when she's in seven space. It's just, it's not my cup of tea. So. Now you know what life is like for the rest of us. <laughs> And, uh, and I bet, and I know she has said out loud, like when we've been in couple series, I can tell he's in that one space when he's, when he's doing this and I just kind of stay out of his way. Uh, so also called unsettling. Um, and I think we'll be talking about this later tonight. I <laughs> immediately regret it. Uh, so can y'all talk about that a little bit as a four and a one? Um, Real quick, I feel like I have to address that headshot now because you brought it up. <laughs> so now I have to address that's, it. Hang on, that's the one that was just talking the whole time. <laughs> I was just here. Oh, and I think it feeds into a little bit what you were talking about, about fitting into spaces. When that headshot was taken, it was the first couple of months of me working at the practice that I still work at. That is very much, um, there is a look that you have to go for. Um, very polished, very professional. And to fit into that space, that's what I did. I, I put on those damn blazers. I wore heels for the first two years of my work there until I got a little older and also figured out, like, I don't have to do that for people to take me seriously. I can be more genuine and authentic, and it doesn't change. My degrees are still hanging on the wall. I'm still a great therapist. So now I wonder if, like, if I was to take a headshot now, I would probably look a little bit more like Katie because not like that. Calm down. <laughs> Um, because I don't, I don't feel like I have to fit into those spaces anymore. I'm a little more accepting of who I am in general, comprehensively. Yeah, it's so interesting, the dichotomy. I almost feel like the owners of your practice might be ones where it is like pantyhose, you know, blazers. Um, 
I employ five therapists now at my practice and literally like in the handbook, it's like, make sure your bits are covered when you're doing therapy. Like, I don't care what you dress like. That's not like, I just don't care. I'd rather people be authentic. So yeah. Bits. I think someone didn't hear bits. There we go. Yeah. I, I heard a late uh, clarity that happened. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, um, something Justine and I have also talked about in the past is a lot of therapists will, uh, which there's nothing wrong with, but they have like a professional social media page, like a professional Instagram and then a personal Instagram. Um, something we both stopped, we both stopped doing that a while ago. Um, so I just post everything to my business page because I'm just like, this is me. Like, <laughs> I hope, I hope something about this is appealing enough for you to like ask for help or any of that. And I did get talked to once about that. Um, an older family member was like, Hey, it's so cool that you're on your own doing that. But like you cuss on your page and you wait, like there's pictures of you like in bathing suits. And that kind of goes back, I think to what you were talking about, like too much or not enough for fours. And I was like, I'm done caring about like the rules. Um, and I was like, if people take a look at that and they're like, I can't, that is so unprofessional for a therapist. I can't be a part of it. I was like, then we're not a good match. That's completely fine. I have a ton of people to send you to that are super professional. will make you feel very comfortable. That's no problem. But I think, yeah, leaning into my foreness, like that really helped over the past few years. And then as far as our friendship, I think you had asked about that too. Knowing our Enneagram numbers and like leaning into them, I think has created so much compassion for each other, but also for ourselves. Cause I think there's a lot of like self-criticism that everyone does. And now we know the motivation behind that. So we're able in our friend group to kind of also like pick people out and be like, why are you acting like a two? Like, what is wrong with you today? What's happening? And so again, it cuts short a lot of those conversations where it's like, well, I didn't know you were upset. I didn't know you were struggling. It's like, I can tell that you're being weird. Like, I was like, you're acting like a four and that's not cool. So <laughs> I'm the individual here. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the thing. Like, uh, because I, as a one, I go to four in stress, you automatically recognize that and you check in with me. And it's kind of hard because I don't know where us being a therapist ends and us knowing about the Enneagram starts because I always feel like we support each other in the way that we need to be supportive supported and I don't know if that's because of you know that I'm a one or because you're a therapist I don't know but um yeah there's always a lot of empathy that gets generated when I, I'm in a bad place because you know what it's like to be in a bad place and you don't say the wrong things like oh it's gonna get better or buck up you don't say things like that because like you know that's not helpful you got anything you want to tag on to that I think one of the most important things that uh is said but not enough about the Enneagram is that um, your Enneagram number is determined by motivation, not behavior, but it's also connected to how you see. And you can never change how you see. All you can do is change what you do with how you see. And if all of your energy is into trying to change how you see, then you never get to the work that you can do in changing what you do with how you see. And changing what you do with how you see doesn't change how you see. You still see the same thing. You just choose to um, talk about that in a different 
way or to address other people in a different way. And I think that we try not only to get people to see through the lens that we look through, but to see what we see when we look through the lens that they think is the same. And there's no way. Nobody, nobody looks through the lens that you look through because it has all your stuff plus your Enneagram number. One of the things I said about Steve, uh, and any of you who know Steve will uh, remember this. Steve, uh, it just dawned on me about six weeks ago that Steve has been manipulating me for years to agree with him. And you know how he does it? He starts off, if he disagrees with me, he'll say, well, you know, you know, you know, something, 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 you know, something, something, something. And by the time he gets through saying, you know, 15 times, you agree with him. Because the whole time he was saying, you know, to support what you should know in order to be standing where he stands, right? And so along with you can't change how you see, but you can change what you do with how you see. Another reality is that once you do this kind of work, you have a responsibility for being willing to walk behind another person and look and see what they see. At least see what they choose or pick out of a crowd to see. And you have a responsibility for asking somebody to share their lens with you rather than arguing about whether or not your lens or theirs is correct. Since you know there are nine, and then you know there's all the stuff that goes into those nine, we can't build relationships without asking questions. Making statements just doesn't get you there. Just doesn't. Does anyone listen to Dr. Sanjay Gupta on anything that he does? He pops on the ticket every morning with his minute. Shout out to the ticket like I normally do here. Um, I wish you could get the ticket to shout out to us like you shout out to them. I think it's a different demographic, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, we speak the universal language. It doesn't have to be a different demographic. But my dear friend, and Whitney hears me talk about him all the time. Well, Dr. Sanjay Gupta said this about CBD sleeper pills or whatever. I don't know. The thing that he talked about this morning that got my anagram brain turning, and he was talking about during the pandemic, because of just everything, probably a lot of people added, uh, started following people just because you're, you know, you're bored. You got your phone. Okay, follow, follow, follow. And then he started talking about this, that what people put up on social media is 99.99 the best of what they've got. And he was talking about the psychological aspect of that, of looking at that, and he was like, if, you are, if you're following this person and you start feeling jealous and envious of what they're doing and what they're showing, you know, first of all, know that, that it's not actual reality probably. Maybe click on follow or click, uh, what are the other things, mute and that kind of stuff. But what I was thinking about was when I, as an anagram seven, see a post that someone did this like incredible thing, I save it and I'm like, guess what Joel's going to figure out how to do? And I, I can do it. Like, that's my mentality of looking at it. And I started thinking about that for tonight. When we've got a two, a one, a four, and a seven, what is your experience around that? Around, we've talked about, uh, is one of the things that we want to talk about some tonight, about the importance of 
a healthy body image for yourself and so on. So when I see that, when I, if I see some hunky whatever, I see the shirt. I don't see the guy. I was like, I, I do want that shirt as a seven. Can you all talk as both your Enneagram number, as therapists, as someone who does ministry, your reflections on that and your opinions? My immediate, like, thought that comes to, like, whatever has to do with social media is when I see that same post, I'm like, oh, cool. This is how I'm failing. I'm not doing that. They're younger than me, but I didn't do that. Like, they've got so much more going on than I do, but I'm not doing that. That inner critic voice really rears up if I'm in a bad, if it's a bad day. On a good day, because I have been trying to work on this, (laughs) like, okay, I don't have to compare. That's fine that they did that. I'm doing this. That's a good day. But on a bad day, when those voices are pretty loud, it's comparison, criticism of myself. Yeah. A lot of that is true, I think, for fours. Even the, the crux of a four, you know, being envy, it's, that is another part of the path or the road back to you that I saw myself in a lot was um, I was like, envy? No. And then when it said fours are, they look at what, how other people are living life and they're like, cool, something's missing in me because, yeah, I was like, yeah. So I would always look around me and be like, why can't? I be normal because all the normal people seem super happy. There's a lot of that with body image too. We know the saying comparison is the thief of joy. And that's so true. I mean, that's one of the first things with um, eating disorder work or body image work that I'll tell clients like unfollow people. (laughs) Like if you feel bad about yourself watching someone, I'm like, and it could just be temporary, just unfollow. And they're like, but I love her clothes. And I'm like, cool, but it's not helpful. You can refollow in a few months. Stop doing this to yourself. It's awful to have to say to your adult child, you really taught me how to do this hard thing. (laughs) But I used to, your sisters are notorious for when there's a picture taken, checking it to see if they're going to let it go, right? And I was not in most pictures. Like I just didn't have my picture taken very often. And those days are over. And uh, the first time Joel posted something that I thought didn't flatter me, I came to you and said, you know, like, I'm trying not to do this, but I really don't like that picture. And he said, oh, so, like, you don't want to be authentic about this, but we're going to have this authentic ministry, and we're going to talk to people about how great they are, but it's only they're great if they pick out the picture. Let's be clear, I didn't jump to that. That wasn't the... (laughs) And so I said to Joe as recently as last week, you know, I'm getting better. I don't like this picture, but I'm, I'm not even inclined anymore to say to Joel, can we do a different picture? Did you take more than this one? Can, can it be different? And my experience has been the more I don't try to find the right picture, for him to put up on whatever platform, is that the right word, it's on, the more content I am with whatever picture comes. It's like there's a pattern there that if you break the pattern and you're not like in, in that cycle anymore, then it gets easier and easier. So, uh, you know, then you start 
picking on yourself because of your hair or something else. But it's it's a nice it's a nice break that only comes after you've accepted the pictures that you wouldn't have necessarily had up. And then, you know, I have all these people who want to have their picture taken with me. Well, it took me forever to get okay with that. Like forever. And I kept thinking, does anybody have a threshold around me about how much of this people grabbing me and taking their picture with me we're going to do? See, like he's so uncomfortable, he doesn't even want me to look at him and talk to him. So he's looking away like, yes, stop talking to me. I'm going to just give you a little kiss there. So this is what we're talking about. You've got to be all about this stuff. <laughs> Having a 71-year-old hit on you while we're doing this, you've got to go with it. <clears throat> Oh. How you doing now? She's having a good time. Um, I had to get over that, never seeing those pictures. But I still have to put on lipstick. I still say, when people say, can I take my picture with you? Do I have on lipstick? And everybody tells me the truth. No, you want some, they'll say. <laughs> but so what I'm trying to say is, I think if you, if you take the edges off a little and you let the boundary be a little less strident, then you experience self-acceptance that you're not going to get any other way. Because if you're always hiding who you are instead of that being available, then you're not there. Like, you're not there. I did find out Joel has a threshold. One woman somewhere, I was signing books. I was about, yeah. You go. I've got so many things to add on to all the things okay. that you just said there. First of all is one that I actually got to post. I don't know if anybody saw recently on her social media. I like to call it her pretentious picture. And it was one that's kind of making fun of uh, people that don't know the Enneagram talking about the Enneagram. And she looks like this. She's like, oh, oh. <laughs> And if you ever, for the right dollar amount, I have got so many, I'm not a good photographer, and that's one of my jobs at LTM. So I am a volume shooter. Man, just snap, 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 snap. So many great, great pictures of Suzanne. When she's talking about these taking, taking pictures with people. I'm feeling a little nauseous. I'm telling you, there's a little, you got to have that, you know, safety blanket there. Uh, so we're at, I, I want to say, I'm pretty confident it was Kansas City. We are in Kansas City, and there was a big group there, and I was the only one that traveled. But uh, for some reason, Lucy Newman was there. Very cool, but out of the ordinary. And, and Hunter just kind of came to visit, came to be part of it. And I'm over there selling books and whatnot, and it's the end. And I was like, can you all do this? Just man the book signing table. Like, she, one of you, take the name of whoever they want it signed to, put it in there. And the other one, just kind of stand by Suzanne and get her water. I don't know. Make her feel comfortable. The thing. And I look over there, and there's a girl sitting in my 70-year-old mother's lap. <laughs> Not even, and I was like, what the hell are y'all doing? Are you got, there's a girl sitting in her lap. Like, <laughs> so, yeah. I was like, what is happening here? She jumped in my lap and said, Autograph for everybody has an autograph. I want a picture. Smile. God. <laughs> it was uh, awful. Like your it Santa was Claus. Awful. It was awful. One Joel flew over there. Yeah. Get like, up. He just like, said, get up. 
What's the matter with you? And, and by the way, she was an adult. Like, it wasn't... Yeah, it was inexcusable. It wasn't my 12-year-old. One of the things that you got me thinking about as we're talking about uh, comparison, being the thief of joy, just being worried about our worried about ourselves, how other people look at us. Uh, right now, we're working on a movie series for the rest of the year, and so I'm watching these to kind of vet them out. And one that we won't be able to show at the Micah Center, but I love it so much, is um, this is where I leave you. Has anyone seen that? So. This is where I leave you. Check it out. It's probably rated R, but it's, it's phenomenal. Why can't we show it? <laughs> Give it a watch. Um, <laughs> but it didn't get my attention the last time I watched it. So I, I will give it a watch. Small spoiler alert. It's at the beginning. He, Jason Bateman's dad dies. He also has this thing happen in his life. He catches his wife cheating on him. So that scene is part of the reason why we can't show it. Oh, got it. So, uh, and then he doesn't for six months. He knows that his dad is dying, but sick. But he doesn't go see him because he doesn't want his dad to judge him for... Uh, she cheated on him with his boss. Sorry. Uh, again, all in the first ten minutes of the movie. I've not ruined this movie whatsoever. But his fear of what his dad would think about him robbed him from any time with his dad before he passed. And I've seen that movie 20 times. And that was the first time that I caught that. And I feel like y'all are talking about that a little bit right now. Can you talk some more about it? I mean, as, as a one, how people perceive me being perfect, always doing the right thing is super important to me. Um, and as I've gotten older and I've worked on myself when it comes to that inner critic voice, it's become more important to me to be more congruent instead of perfect. There are things that are important to me and that's how I'm going to live my life. And sometimes that doesn't come out super perfect, but that congruence is important to me. So that's how I kind of work on how I'm being perceived by others or how I feel like I'm being perceived or whatever face I'm putting out there. Like, am I being congruent to my values? Okay, well then this is just going to have to be good enough kind of thing. I think for me, feeling that sense of non-belonging for so long as a four made it very much um, me trying to become, like as a three wing, me trying to become whatever the person I was with wanted to see. So if I knew, well, they're a super successful business person, I'm going to start talking about business oh, related things. Three stuff. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and you're good at it. If you have a big three wing, you're really good at it. Yeah. Except it's a big sellout if you're a four. Yes. Um, but some of that I view as such a good thing because when I'm doing therapy with other people, it's very easy for me to meet them where they are, especially like teenagers. That's a hard one. So being able to become what they need me to be in that one moment of therapy, it has been a huge, yeah, gift. Yeah. What is the great the greatest benefit of your Enneagram number as a therapist? So twos and fours make the best therapists. Well, I shouldn't say that because you're a great therapist. <laughs> we've got, Minimizing again, me. We've got, we've got the edit button. Don't worry. Don't worry. We've got the edit button. <laughs> Take that out. Um, Those ones, though, oh, I don't know, you know. I have a lot of them in my life, so... Um, 
But no, I always tell people the difference between like a two and a four. And I think I may have even heard this at a workshop from you. If someone's dog dies, a two is going to show up with a puppy and be like, I can fix it. See, your heart is mended. A four will just, I will sit in the misery with you because that's comfortable for me. So in therapy, when people are like, this big thing just happened, I'm a big proponent of what we call radical acceptance, which is just, it wasn't okay what happened. It really sucks, but like, we do have to move somewhere. <laughs> like, either we're going to stay still or we're going to go backwards or we're going to go forwards. But it's like, it is what it is. So, yeah, I think that's the easiest thing for me is that when someone is just really low, I can just be like, this sucks. Let's sit here and talk about how bad it is. And that's comfortable. Like, I don't have to fix it um, unless I'm in my two space, which is my stress number. So that's another way that I know I'm not showing up therapeutically the way that I normally would if I'm not doing well, because I have this immediate need if someone's crying for me to be like, but, but it isn't that bad. Like, come on, you have so many good things. Um, Yeah, that's how it shows up the most for me. That's funny because it's kind of the same thing. Um, Because I'm a one and I have that very strong inner critic voice that's always like shitting on everything that I do. When I come across that in a client, I know what that feels like. And I know all they need to hear is like, I see what you're going through and like, I accept you. Like, you don't have to fix yourself. You don't have to be different for me. I just accept you. Um, So that radical acceptance, like unconditional positive regard that I can give to clients um, is impactful usually. Because you work to give it to yourself. Yeah. Like it's impactful because you've done it and they know you did it. Yeah, you can just tell. On most days. Yeah. Well, some days it's on, yeah, well, in those days it doesn't work, right? Yeah. Like everybody knows if it's legit or not. And everybody's illegitimate sometimes. So they just roll with it, I think. Yeah. Let's continue down the line here. You are not a licensed therapist. I am not. We, you know, you got to sign something if you talk to her saying that you understand that. <laughs> However, there are people that look to you and what you say. In your teaching and in your ministry, what do you think are the benefits of you being a two well as you might expect from me if you know my teaching because the best the the best part of you is also the worst part of you right and so that's true in this answer too the best part of me is that I feel your feelings in ways that I struggle to feel and name my own so as a therapist I can feel what you're feeling not a therapist (laughs) (laughs) I was just seeing it. I want to be like them. I just <laughs> trying it out. Everybody else was going to let it fly. <laughs> I planned that. I thought you were doing something else. So when I deal with anybody, I've already felt what they're feeling. So people talk a lot about my one-on-one connection to people when I'm teaching if they ask a question regardless of how many people are in the room. 300 or 30. And it's because I feel your feelings, which is great until it isn't great. And so the problem I would have if I was a therapist and the problem that I sometimes have as a two in relationship to people who 
are asking me a question or want my help in some way is when I offer something back, am I trying to take care of myself because I'm feeling what you're feeling or am I trying to take care of you? And so I just have this whole litany I do when somebody asks a question in the room, uh, right, right? I just start saying to myself, Suzanne, this is not you. Internally, I'm saying, this is not you, this is not you. Because that way, I get to what I think. And this may be deeper Enneagram work than some of you have done, but if you don't know stances, then I want you to. And the reality is that I'm feeling dominant and doing supports feeling, but I'm thinking repressed. And so my connections with other people require a lot of good self-questioning or I'm not in the relationship in a healthy way. So I have to be really careful about why am I moving toward you? What do I expect to get in return from you? And is this mine to do? And more often than you might think, it's not mine to do. And I've learned to not jump in where it's not mine to do. For the uh, probably 50th time tonight, I'm going to reference the most recent episode of the podcast. It was uh, so great talking to him. It was. Good grief. You said something that when you said it at the time, who knows what I was doing, and thought about it a little bit when I heard it for the fully edited time today, and now it's coming back up for me when you're talking right here. You were talking about point of reference. So Mike was talking about he, w- he gave the location where he was at when something happened. And you talked about how you, your point of reference is who you are with. Like it's a relational point of reference. And then you said, when I see, I can see when other people are in pain, but if I don't have the story, I don't feel their pain. Is that too specific? So uh, everything is relational for us, twos. Everything. And I... As you know from my teaching, I teach with stories because that's the way I remember and I assume and I think I'm right that other people remember stories more easily than they remember bullet points. Although some people prefer bullet points, threes, sevens, and eights. You know, let me tell you how to communicate with them right now. Forget the story. (laughs) The thing that Mike and I were talking about in terms of point of reference is my point of reference is always the person who's standing in front of me or sitting in front of me or sitting beside me and I can observe your pain but if I don't know where it's coming from I don't feel it and I'm better when I feel it and then bring up thinking before I respond to it and I don't think every number can do that like you can't I don't, don't think. <laughs> I'm sad. Man, that sucks that you're sad. So I don't need to be sad too. That's growth right there. I didn't try to reframe it for you. Right there. That was a... Man, I'm feeling really good about myself. So, twos, let me tell you a way that I think you'll be able to really latch on to this. It's kind of new for me in about the last couple of years to think about. Joe is one of four children, um, and um, I'm one of three, but my brothers were 18 and 15 when I was born. So I was essentially raised as an only child. And raised as a two and an only child, I have very few memories from childhood. And it's because my point of reference is other people, and I was alone so much of the time 
that I don't have memories. Just I just don't have them. And all of my memories that I try to talk to my family or the people who are close to me about have to do with remember that time when we were with Joel and Whitney or whoever. That's my frame of reference. Always is other people. And that's great, and it's limited. You spoke a little bit there when you started answering the prior question about the best part of you as a not therapist but counseling human being. What? I like that better. Like Counseling can, human being? Yeah. Count, so. Put that on my business card. I like that. There we go. <laughs> oh, yeah. So right there, asterisk, not a therapist. Counseling human being, though. Uh, can you all talk to some of the struggles you have as a one and a four? Like, all right, I know why being a four and a one is helpful being a therapist. What's the other side of that coin? Yeah. So... <laughs> <laughs> The other side of that, when I'm in a more unhealthy space, is I see all the things that you're doing, and you could be doing so much better. And I move into judgment. And this is how you could be doing it right, better, more healthy, and you're not doing it, and just getting really frustrated with the client, and forgetting to kind of meet them where they're at. And to step into that non-judgmental space. But I, I do feel myself being like that at times. And it's like, oh, okay, what's going on with me? I need to figure some things out. Um, but, yeah, that's, that's the, down, the hard side, I guess, about being a one as a therapist. You know, though, you, I'm going to be a counseling human being for a minute. <laughs> um, your way of seeing is judging and comparing. So you can't change that. Right? Like, that's how you're always going to see it. So what happens is ones beat themselves up for being judgmental. But that's how you're put together. So what you have to beat yourself up for is what you do with your judgment, not because that's how you see. Like, I, you know, we're all going to be hard on ourselves at, at times. I just think we need to do it in the right way. <laughs> so I'm hard on myself when I go after somebody that, it's not mine to do, and I get, I'm get. i hard on myself, especially when I kind of lure somebody into my world, you know, and then I get mad at them for being lured into my world and needing me. It's like, I teach you to need me, and then I get mad at you for needing me. I'm suddenly feeling a great deal of shame. I'm going to stop talking. <laughs> and you are to never mention that last sentence again. Feeling a great deal of shame? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was the one? No, not that one. <clears throat> I think the hardest thing about being a four and being a therapist is being able to be quiet when I need to be. I joke with my friends. Um, we've been out before, and how many times have I been like, I'm being too much. Like, I feel like I talk all the time, and they'll be like, no, you're fine. Um, but in therapy, I can feel myself doing it sometimes. And I have to force myself to say to the client, like, your face is doing this thing. Like, what, what's going on right now? Or I'll ask, what's going on in your body, like, as you tell this story? Because my first inclination, I always joke with people, I walk into rooms already explaining myself. Like, I walk into rooms introducing myself or telling people why I'm wearing what I'm wearing or look at my nails, look at this. I like, trying to establish that individuality, I think. And so getting myself to just stop and say, what's going on in your body? Like, what are you feeling right now? And just allowing them some space to sit in the discomfort 
is a struggle sometimes. Questions in the room. Who's got one? You got one? Yeah. All right. What, I mean, whatever you want to do. Marla, you have to come up here and sit down and introduce yourself. In her lap. You have to sit in her lap. <laughs> Obviously. There we go. She loves that. Yeah, she loves that. Loves yeah, lap sitting. Suzanne's lap. Tell your name, your number, what you want for Christmas, and your question. Oh. All right. So, yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> Hi, I'm Marla, and I'm a one, and Justine, um, yeah, Justine, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, thank you so much for how you were, you were talking about how you've noticed that it's less about perfection now and more about congruence, and that resonates deeply with me, and I feel like I have, I've started to feel that in the last few years, like that seems more fitting, and I think part of it has to do with the collective trauma that we've all been through. Um, so for me, since I've noticed that I need to be congruent and having a greater awareness of trauma in my own life, in my past, and in everyone around me, that there is a need for safety there and healing and to not be triggered all the time, but at the same time feeling like if somebody asks me how I'm doing and I can tell that they genuinely want to know, but it's in a setting where I'm not safe to share it, I'm like, what do I do with that now? Because I don't feel safe to be congruent. So I was wondering what kind of a feedback you have on that, especially because I'm also in a, a caregiver's, not caregiver's, that's not the role, helper's role. I'm, also, I'm a pastor. So it's similar in that there are times when other people need me to be a certain way, need me to be strong, and um, they don't necessarily want to know how I'm really doing, but some people do. So it's tricky to figure out, like, at what point is it safe to truly be congruent with how I present to the world? Man, that's a good question. Yeah. It's a hard question. No softballs um, tonight, yeah. <laughs> right? Just like out the gate. Um, I think there's a lot of really, um, a lot of different variables that have to come into play with that kind of like mental calculus as to, to figure out like, is this a place to be fully congruent, to be fully transparent in myself? Um, safety is one that I talked about earlier and it's one that you just mentioned. Like, is this safe for me to be congruent right now? Do I have the mental bandwidth to be congruent right now? Because that takes energy to be authentic to whoever is asking you. I think there's a lot of different variables at play there. Um, I feel like my my response would, I guess, to err on the side of being cautious of myself and like, you know what, if I'm second guessing whether I want to be honest right now, I'm just going to table it. And I'm going to reflect on that later as to like what was going on for me there it's never too late to like go back and have a conversation with someone and be like, you know what? Earlier you asked me how I was. I was, I lied. I'm going to be honest now. This feels a little bit more safe. I'm going to be honest right now. Is how I would address it. I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah. Well, both of y'all talked to it some, uh, you got your hand raised. And the thing that I'm thinking about is how you talk about the importance of story, but not everybody deserves to hear your story. Yeah. I, my thing is don't tell your story or parts of your story to anybody who hasn't earned the right to hear it. You don't have to do that. Like, you don't have to. And is it incongruent to tell part of it but not all? Like, you can tell what you feel safe telling and then no more. If you're not me. <laughs> like, I either have to, I'm all or nothing. 
Like, you know, I either got to shut my mouth or y'all got to sit back. <laughs> uh, something I thought of as you were asking the question is, I think for every number and the more you know about your number on the Enneagram, boundaries look different for every number. And I just had that thought is like, when we are able to create boundaries, which I think is so much of what therapy does for people, it may look totally different. And that's a lot of how I, you know, in, when I'm in a one space, will handle those types of situations where I feel like, okay, I can't actually say what I think because of the company or, you know, whatever. Learning what you are and are not going to do is huge. Um, and allows you that space, I think, and it's going to be harder for some numbers, you know, over others, but that's been a huge thing for me is just like, I'm not going to talk about that right now, but we can talk about blink instead, or no, I cannot come to coffee on that day. I know I'm already going to be tired. Can we do it another day? So that's another way to keep myself safe when I'm in a one space is me knowing me the best, not making commitments two things or with people that I know like I don't have I don't have the spoons to be fake that day I can't do it people talk a lot about the negative that it to have no boundaries or poor boundaries is like all the flaws in that and what makes life hard what about the is it is being over boundary a thing and is that bad because I feel when Whenever people talk about boundaries, I'm like, man, I have the best boundaries. <laughs> and I'm like, there's no way that I've got this down, though. So can you talk to the other side of that, of being too boundaried? And then we'll hear Suzanne's question that might be as good as that one. I don't know. Uh, yeah, you can totally be over-boundaried. Like, I think when you're over-boundaried, that's where you step into rigidity. Um, and shutting yourself off to experiences or relationships or whatever because you have too many walls around you um and I think there's also a time and place for that like sometimes those boundaries feel very safe and they create a safe space for you but then you can outgrow them and now you're missing out like I I think you can totally be over boundaried as a one who loves their boundaries (laughs) so I have nothing to contribute because I don't have any boundaries (laughs) (laughs) Can I say something else about boundaries, though? Yeah. (laughs) Um, Something I love doing in couples work especially is defining for people the difference between an agreement, a rule, and a boundary. Because I think people, it's interesting, Suzanne, when you say, like, that's just the way that you see, and that's not going to change. Um, I have to teach couples that when you say, like, an example of a rule would be, like, you're not allowed to do blank. Or, like, I've had clients be like, well, I'm uncomfortable around drinking, so you can't have, like, no one can come over if they're drinkers or anything like that. Um, And I'm like, that's a rule because you're telling other people what their behavior should be. An agreement is something both sides are saying, I think this is probably a good idea that we eliminate this from our life. And both people are like, okay, that's okay. A boundary, I always say, you're filling in a sentence of, if blank happens, I plan on doing blank. And I think as, again, when you know your Enneagram number, that makes it a lot easier to fill in those blanks. <laughs> that is pure gold. Oh. Thank you cool. very much. <laughs> 
it changes the conversation in relationships, whether it's parent, child, boss to employee, you know, partners, because someone will inevitably say he's not allowed to go out with his guy friends because blah, blah, blah. And that's my boundary. It's a boundary. We got to stick to my boundaries. That has to be honored. I was like, we do, but I'm not honoring that because that's not a boundary. It's a rule on someone else's behavior. What you can say is like, if you continue to go out with your guy friends and there's trouble with that, I plan on doing blank and that you're only controlling your own behavior. No one can say anything about it. So yeah, that looks a lot different for every number I've realized. (laughs) Is there a difference yeah, between I just a- like it, though. The second time through, it gets a little sassier. Did you see that? <laughs> like, the first time, it was just, you know, you got rules and agreements and boundaries. And then it was like, you do that, and I'm doing this. <laughs> well, it did get sassier. Is there a difference between, in that definition, a boundary and an ultimatum? Yep. So, what I tell my clients all the time. So, let's take an example of someone who says, my wife has a ton of trauma in her past, but she refuses to speak to therapists, won't be on medication, and everything, I, like, everyone just has to tiptoe around her. Like, everything makes her upset, and we don't know what we're walking into when we walk in the house, like, what kind of mood. And I was like, cool. So how long is that going to be sustainable, that everyone tiptoes around the issue? Um, and how long are we catering to this person who says, I'm not working on myself, you better change. And I said, unfortunately, to someone like that who does not want to put in the work, you setting a boundary for your own behavior is going to sound like an ultimatum. It always does. (laughs) I've had partners in session be like, that's not fair. You can't say what I can and cannot do. And I was like, where did they say that? They said, if you come home a certain way, again, I plan on getting a hotel room because I don't want to be in the house with you. That's very different than like, you're not allowed to go out drinking because you're insane. Like when you get home. Um, And so, yeah. A person who's saying then, yeah, I'm not going to work on myself or my trauma. You better just learn to live with it. They're going to see it as, but you're forcing me to go to therapy or else you're going to, what, go get a hotel room? And that's where I tell my clients, like, you have to know, like, deep down that your boundaries are okay. And if you need to run that by a therapist, a spiritual leader, a best friend, that's fine. Um, But there are going to be people who say, how selfish of you to have that boundary. It sounds like, and how often does it come back to this, that the difference is context. Yeah. And when we don't have the full picture in the context, then go south. Messy. Messy. Okay. It's an honor to be sitting with the two of you in this context. I have affection with the honor because I have a heart for adolescents who are marginalized for whatever reason. People, for people who are marginalized and for adolescents who are marginalized. And in listing all of the good work that you do, you are working in part with adolescents. But beyond that, a lot of the list of who you are and what you do has to do with people who are marginalized. And I'm convinced that we could do better, we could do better, if we had more education. There's so much that we don't know. So I, uh, Joe and I, and Joel, 
we were all at the airport in maybe Portland. I don't <clears throat> a lot of airports. <laughs> um, and a man uh, got there. Joe and Joel were getting coffee, and a man... Good God, it was Portland. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not going to tell you what he said specifically, but he started talking to me by asking me a, a very uh, pointed question about somebody he had a lot of judgment about, about a group of people he had a lot of judgment about. And then he just kept on... And on and on. And the more he talked, the more I was aware that he did not know what he was talking about. He had judgment and no facts. And nobody to tell him to shut up. Joel wanted to. We thought it would be inappropriate. <laughs> no, I've, here's what Joel did. You can see everyone's anagram numbers. First, I went to the restroom for about a good 20. And when I came out, I walked over and put in my AirPods. I was like, put in your AirPods. It's on him if he wants to keep talking to someone not listening to him. So you don't even have to have anything playing. Just put them on. <laughs> so I try to teach from always from my weakness because that's my edge where I want to learn, right? And I have what you all sent to us, and there are, there are uh, pieces of who you are that I could not define if somebody gave me a lot of money. And so I thought, well, I want to I look good, and I certainly want them to feel respected and honored by me, so I'll skip over what I don't know. And then I decided that was neither honoring nor respectful. And then I decided that we can put a podcast into the world that at least, at least gives people a definition for things they talk about that they couldn't define if they were asked to. So I would like to ask you to give a definition for us walking around in the world folks, not therapist folks, for some of the... Identifiers? Identifiers. That's a great word. Thank you. That you shared and that... Uh, I, and I'm going to tell everybody which two I had to look up. Because I wasn't going to show up not sort of knowing. Because we're all talking about things, about people who are marginalized and about who they say they are. And we have no idea what they're talking about or what we're talking about. And we don't bother to find out. And if we're going to say, as I continue to, both of my pastors keep me in line on this, that everybody, everybody is welcome at the table, then we need to know who everybody is. So I'm going to run through it, all right? Y'all be loud. <laughs> Loudest you've been all night. This is big. I sit up. <laughs> all right. <clears throat> all right, sis. I bet everybody doesn't know sis, so you start, Katie. Uh, cisgendered just means I identify as the gender that I was born as. I identify as a female. Yeah, you know people are saying that and they don't know what it means. So thank you. I mean, I know this is very elementary for the two of you, but for the rest of us. All right, pansexual. Um, that means that um, gender presentation, sex identifiers isn't something that I take into account when I'm attracted to someone. Um, sexually, I'm attracted to no matter what gender presentation, any kind of presentation. 
more interested in the personality. Okay, I'm going to tell everybody about demisexual because I looked it up. <laughs> Yay, Suzanne. Because <laughs> I didn't know, and that's disrespectful to not know, right? So it means that you're not turned on by physicality alone. There has to be more to the relationship. How'd I do? That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Shoot. Made an A. All right. <laughs> Polyamorous. Cool. So that's for both of us. Um, polyamory just means you're able to have a loving relationship with more than one person. That's poly meaning many, amorous meaning love. It's many loves. At the same time. At the, yes. At the same time. It's not cumulative over your life. Yeah. yeah. That, that's everybody. I've <laughs> loved eight people. Isn't there a song by some sexy guy, all the girls that I loved? Doesn't he say that real funny? Yes, look at Joe Stabile. Look at Father Stabile nodding his head back there. He knows. He knows that song. We're say, I'm that the wrong. song for the show notes for, for sure. <laughs> All right. People hear people say my pronouns are, but they don't know what that means. Some people don't know what that means. So help with that. So pronouns meaning how you identify as a gender. So that's where we're starting to hear a lot of the he, they they, them, you know, for me, it's she, her, because I am cisgendered and I identify as female. Um, and a lot of the reason why, because I, I was also once asked, if you're not trans or non-binary, why are you introducing yourself with pronouns? And a lot of the reason why we do that, especially in the therapeutic world, is to normalize it for the people who weren't able to say that out loud before. So we'll oftentimes be like, I'm Katie, she, her, Yep. And then it offers space for other people who may not have been able to say that out loud to be like, oh, cool. Okay, great. Okay, and what, which is best? Like if I'm trying really hard to work the pronouns and do it right when I'm talking to somebody who's trans, but I don't get that right, is it better to try and not get it right or not try? To try and not get it right. Okay, can you do two sentences that school people on how you say a sentence with a trans person. So, for example, if a person is transitioning from male to female, then are the pronouns she, her, and do you use her? Or do you use they? I like. So, whatever someone is now identifying as, like in that example, we would say that's a woman because that's how they are seeing, that's where they're transitioning to. I always just say though, ask the person because that's a lot of assumption um, that we're finding out. So always just ask the person. And the biggest thing is when you do mess up, don't make it a big deal. Like that's what a lot of the population is telling us is don't make it a huge deal. And also don't pretend it never happened. The best thing to do is just correct yourself um, or correct other people. That's a huge one. If you're in a conversation and they're like, well, my daughter, and you know that that's not the case, you can just be like, son, you know, you don't need to embarrass anybody, but it's just correcting yourself is a good way of doing that. Okay. Uh, all right. Soji, S-O-G-I. I know what that is because I looked that up too. Because that's the other one I didn't know. Soji is sexual orientation, gender identity. Right? Talk about that for a minute. So 
I'll take that one. Um, so I feel like that's one that doesn't get a lot of airplay. Um, I feel like most people are more comfortable or know more about LGBTQI or LGBT plus or whatever. Um, and this is just a more like a less letters. It covers a lot more bases, sexual orientation, <laughs> relationship, identity. Um, it's not one that I hear a lot of people use. Um, it's an umbrella term. I know I'm trying to use it more. I'm trying to make it be more of a thing, but yeah, a lot of people don't know that term. So, yeah. That makes me feel better. Anytime I see uh, anything we left out and the words are, I specialize in treating a lot of things and then it gets to adolescence ages 13 to 18, I've got a lot of concern about suicide ideation and and death by suicide among adolescents. And if there's one thing that you could say other than figure out who you're listening to and what they're trying to tell you, and if you have to look it up, look it up. For goodness sakes, look it up instead of walking away and saying, oh, I don't understand any of that, or I don't know about any of that, or I don't know what that means. Don't. Don't keep doing that because I don't know you know the people in the hometown I grew up in say that ADHD we didn't have that when we were kids and the reality is they of course they did of course they did and if I said Soji in Floyd Ada but it's because not of stupidity but ignorance, and ignorance sometimes comes because we don't have an opportunity to learn and we don't get a place to ask questions. And so I, I'm so thankful for the two of you being who you are and giving yourself as therapists to um, marginalized folks who the rest of us have a lot of work to do to understand Richard Rohr taught Joe Stabile and me 30 years ago. Either everything belongs or nothing belongs. That's it right there. So if you want to start taking people away from the table, then be clear there are tables where you can't be either then. Because either we all belong or nobody belongs. And it's just respectful to try to understand how other people see themselves and how they see us. And I'm, I, I just can't be thankful enough for your integrity and your authenticity and your vulnerability. Not just tonight, because y'all have done a lot of work, but the vulnerability that got you here. Because that's something. Hats off to you, all, all the stuff, all the stuff. Now, everybody would like to have their picture taken with you. You don't get to see it before it goes up on Facebook. <laughs>